It was on one Monday morning, just about one o'clock, when that great ship Titanic began to reel and rock. People began to scream and cry, saying, Lord, am I going to die? It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad, it was sad, it was sad when that great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. When that ship left England, it was making for the shore. The rich refused to associate with the poor, so they put the poor below. They were the first to go. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad when that great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. While they were building, they said what they would do. We will build a ship that the water can't go through. But God, with power in hand, showed the world that it could not stand. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad when the great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. Those people on that ship were a long ways from home, with friends all around. They didn't know that the time had come. Death came riding by. Sixteen hundred had to die. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad when that great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. While Paul was sailing, his men all around. God told him that not a man should drown. If you trust in me and obey, I will save you all today. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad when that great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. You know it must have been awful with those people on the sea. They say that they were singing, "Nearer, my God, to Thee." While some were homeward bound, sixteen hundred had to drown. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad when that great ship went down. Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives. It was sad when that great ship went down. Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today, we're going to be trying to answer the question of whether or not the Titanic actually ever sank at all. Oh, yes, that's right. We're going to be talking about the Titanic, and we're going to be talking about her sister ship the Olympic. 
We're going to be talking about J.P. Morgan. We're going to be talking about all kinds of fun and interesting stuff. I think that today is going to be a fun episode, and I think it's a subject that not a lot of people have covered. Actually, as I kind of figured out, this whole ship switch theory kind of comes from really one guy, Robin Gardner, who's going to be the author of a couple of books that's going to be some of our primary resources for today, along with some others. And then there was also a British TV documentary that's an hour long that is actually now streaming for free on Amazon Prime. And I think when I looked up where it was streaming, I think it's on Tubi too. I don't know if anybody actually uses Tubi, but if you do, you're in luck because they have Titanic, The Shocking Truth. And uh, it's an interesting documentary. It has some problems with it. and We'll probably get into that as we talk about this in our next couple of episodes. In today's episode, we're kind of going to set up just the whole story and the ship switch theory. And then in the next episode, we will talk about the uh, people who came to rescue those aboard the Titanic. We're going to be talking about the iceberg and whether or not that's actually what sank the Titanic. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff in this next couple of episodes, but I think it's going to be a fun one, so I hope everybody enjoys it, and it's a nice Sunday where I'm at. I'm looking at my orchid and realizing that I need to water my orchid because it's been a while, but they don't need water too terribly often, so I'll have to get it to room temperature because they like room temperature water. Don't want to freeze out my orchid. But I've got my desk set up the last episode. Sorry if it was not my best episode ever. I was just kind of recording with my laptop balancing on a couple pillows in my bed and holding the microphone. I moved, got my desk all set up, got my area nice and in order. So I'm ready to rock people. And without further ado, let's just go ahead and get into it. And we'll start with talking about the ships that are in question so, I mean, everybody has pretty much heard about the Titanic. Pretty much everybody has seen that James Cameron movie, Titanic, um, for a period of time. It was, you know, the l largest grossing film ever. So everybody is, you know, familiar with the Titanic on some level. You know, we have lots of sayings like, that's like moving deck chairs on the Titanic, what have you. The Titanic's a household name. And I think for the most part that most people tend to believe that it just hit an iceberg. It was a whole unlucky deal, but that's what we're going to get into. But let's just talk about the Titanic for just a little bit. The Titanic was one of three ships in the Olympic-class ocean liners, which was a series of three ships, which were built in the beginning of the 20th century by the Harland and Wolf Shipyard which is in the capital of Northern Ireland, Belfast. So we have the Harlan and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast, and they almost exclusively built ships for the White Star Line, and the Titanic was no exception to that. So the other two ships that were in the Olympic-class ocean liners were the first ship, the Olympic, then there was the Titanic, and then there was the Britannic. And all of these ships were to, designed to be the biggest and most elegant ships at the time. Pretty opulent stuff. And to this day, they remain some of the most famous ocean liners to ever 
exists. Both the Titanic and the Olympic at the time were the largest ships in the world. So that's, you know, a claim to fame in and of itself. And, you know, the Titanic has to be the most well-known ocean liner to ever exist. I mean, it's up there with the most famous ships of all time, you know, probably Titanic being after like Noah's Ark. So maybe it has the number two place in most famous seafaring vessels. But um, so, you know, there's a little bit of background, you know, and as we said, you know, the Titanic would achieve fame and popular culture through the, you know, 1997 James Cameron film. It would be the first film to gross over a billion dollars, which is pretty insane. And it would remain the highest grossing film until James Cameron beat his record in 2010 with Avatar, which I'm not a huge fan of. I did not go to see the second Avatar film. My girlfriend's mother invited me to go see it with them, but I had church that night, so me and my girlfriend opted to spend time with the Lord as opposed to see the Titanic number, not Titanic number two, um, Avatar two. So I can't say if that one's any good or not, but... I wonder what it is with James Cameron that has a knack for just making films that everybody in the whole world goes to see. It's probably just because they're, for the most part, pretty easy films to follow and kind of have universal appeal, so they do well in America as well as abroad, but who knows. But perhaps, you know, given the space that the sinking of the Titanic holds in the public consciousness... We should reevaluate the story that has been told and, you know, take another look deep down into the Atlantic at a depth of over 12,000 feet where the ship that we have been told is the Titanic lies and see if the official story holds up as well as the ship that is 12,000 feet down there you know, 6,500 uh, 6, pounds per square inch of pressure surrounding it. So let's dive into those deep and murky waters. So as mentioned earlier, the Titanic is, you know, as implied by its name, massive. It's a big old boat. Its length was 882 feet and 9 inches, and its height, if measured from the base of the keel to the top of the bridge, stood at 104 feet tall. So, it's a big girl, to say the least. And its gross registered tonnage, which that's the ship's internal volume, and it's measured in registered tons, and a registered ton is a hundred cubic feet. So its gross registered tonnage comes out to 46,329 GRT. So in other words, big as hell. And all three of the Olympic line ships had 10 decks, eight of them being for passengers. And this was by no means the only similarity between the Titanic and the other two ships, especially the Olympic. But the Titanic and the Olympic, the two were actually nearly identical. And most of the differences between the two would only be apparent to the most astute of observers. So, I mean, really, unless you're a dude observing things or a lady observing things like observer nation out there all of you guys you would be it'd be easy to miss some of the differences but some of these differences were that the olympic had a promenade deck that remained open along its whole length while the titanic was enclosed with a steel screen 
that was fitted with sliding doors. And this is actually what would make up the Titanic's extra 1,004 extra gross registered tons. You know, so it's just a wee bit bigger than the Olympic, technically speaking, but not really all that much. But some additional differences were that the B-deck first class promenade decks on the Olympic were eliminated during the construction of the Titanic, and they were replaced by enlarged staterooms with bathrooms inside of the suites. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of those guys who had one of these enlarged staterooms with bathroom a bathroom inside of the suite um, in his name. But that's to come just a little bit later. But there was also a cafe Parisian-style sidewalk cafe added as an annex to the restaurant of the Titanic, as well as a reception area for the restaurant that was added to the foyer of the grand staircase on the ship. So differences that could be spotted from the outside of these two ships would be even more difficult to spot for the most part, with the two ships, as stated earlier, being almost identical to one another. So we've got two peas in a pod. They are twinning. And as probably is apparent to all of you, all of these ships were designed with not only size but luxury in mind. And the reason for this was that these three ships were created with the hopes of, by White Star Line of securing their place at the top of the transatlantic passenger trade. You know, so White Star Line, that's the company that owns these Olympic line ships. And Harlan and Wolf is the ship builders who are located in Belfast. But Harlan and Wolf, the ship builders responsible for the Olympic line, had as its chairman Lord Peary, who would also serve as the Lord Mayor of Belfast for a period of time. And Harlan and Wolf largely constructed ships for the White Star Line, as previously mentioned. And White Star Line would be acquired by none other than John Pierpont Morgan in 1903. That's right, my friends. We are going to be discussing J.P. Morgan, the monopolist, the all-around not-chill bloke. And so that is how J.P. Morgan begins to factor into our stories that he would acquire the White Star, White Star Line. Man, can't talk. And so J.P. Morgan acquired the White Star Line through his trust, which was named International Mercantile Marine, which he had created in an attempt to monopolize the shipping industry and the North Atlantic passenger trade. And this would be done through interlocking directorates. And he would even have a failed attempt at contractual arrangements with railroads, but he didn't really think too much about the nature of ocean business. And so that would fail. But anyways, monopolists are going to monopolize. What can you say? But the chairman of the White Star Line was a guy by J. Bruce Ismay, and he is, if you have seen the Titanic movie, or if you had seen the documentary uh, that I mentioned earlier that was on British television, Titanic, The Shocking Truth, he's the mustached man, the brown-headed mustached man who looks pretty snakish. Um, I don't even know if that's a word, but... He's got a serpentine-type quality to him, in my opinion. He's a bit of a squirrely fella. So, J. Bruce Ismay, he was the chairman of the White Star Line, and he's often, you know, one of the many villains in any portrayal of the Titanic catastrophe. 
given the fact that he was the highest ranking member of the White Star Line to survive the sinking. So it's kind of natural that he would become a scapegoat for people's angers, um, anger at the White Star Line over the sinking of this ship and so many lives lost. So his personal estate would, at his death, be the equivalent of 46,865,431 pounds today, which is quite the number. Or for all of my fellow Americans out there, that'd be $57,222,692. And so, you know, no matter how much you may or may not like, probably don't like J. Bruce is May. Perhaps he is the one who's going to get the last laugh in that situation because uh, any damage to his reputation didn't seem to damage his wallet too terribly. And it was in a conversation between Lord Peary and Ismay where they came up with the idea of creating these three liners that would be the Olympic line. And it should be noted that Peary not only had money in Harlan and Wolf, but that he was a shareholder in White Star and international mercantile marine so you know he had a vested interest in doing this as well aside from you know his involvement with harlan and wolf he was also involved in white star and imm international mercantile marine and this is something that we kind of see between both the harlan and wolf shipyard and you know white star and the company that owns white star um, morgan's international mercantile marine that they're all kind of not one and the same but uh, a bit of an incestuous relationship or whatever the right phrasing is between all of these companies so most passenger liners at the time were immigrant ships and owners would often overload and over insure their ships according to some but depending upon who you talk to this was not the case with International Mercantile Marine. Some people say that they are kind of famous for underinsuring their ships, but that is something that we will cover more towards the end of the episode. But for now, we will set aside the criticism of skeptics of the switch theory, which I will lay out what exactly that is in a little bit, because some of you have probably heard me say switch theory over and over again, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay, because what we are doing right now is laying out the basis of the switch theory, and we're going to work from there. And by the end of this episode, and especially by the end of next episode, you'll have a pretty decent understanding of it. And I will also, to be fair, present some of the criticisms as well. We can have a dialogue, and everyone can choose for themselves what it is that they believe, because... I don't control your mind. Not yet, but maybe I'll start working with some MK Ultra guys and I'll figure out how to control the minds of all an observer nation and, uh, you know, get into psyops or something like that. Probably shouldn't even joke about things like that with a paranoid tech crowd. I wouldn't like my, my favorite podcaster saying that. Anyhow. So the industry is rife with fraud, the shipping and passenger ship industry. And the main alternative theory that we are going to cover is one that centers around fraud, specifically insurance fraud. And, you know, I just mentioned that most passenger liners at the time were immigrant ships. This is another thing that everybody who has seen Titanic will see, you know, uh, Jack's friend. Uh, what was his name? I can't 
think of his name. I just watched the film not too long ago, but, you know, he was, you know, kind of like one of these immigrants guys who's trying to start a new life. And there would be definitely a, which is not something we're going to get too deep into, but there was some real classism aboard the Titanic. You know, you would have, there was three tiers of passengers. You'd have first class, which would be your Morgan's, uh, one of the uh, Hershey uh, guys, the, I can't remember his name, but the um, Mr. Hershey of Chocolate Bar Fortune would uh, not aboard the Titanic. Um, there was an Aster who did actually get on the Titanic, and I believe that he died, if I remember correctly. So, you know, we have the first-class passengers, then you have second-class passengers and third-class passengers. And basically, the third-class passengers were not permitted, really, to interact with anybody. They kind of just had a couple areas that was open to everybody where they were allowed to hang out. But the real opulent dining halls and some of the imagery you think of when you think of the Titanic was not open to everyone. So there definitely was, you know, kind of segregation by class going on aboard the Titanic. So anyhow, on now we're going to talk a little bit about the Olympic and because the switch theory basically maintains that the Olympic had sustained some damage and that the two ships were at some point decided to be switched and that the Titanic, which was actually the Olympic, was purposely sank, uh, sunk in order to collect some insurance money. So we're going to be talking about whether or not that is true, whether it's a possibility and laying out some of the facts surrounding this whole theory. So anyways, now we're going to talk about the Olympic sum, but I just wanted to give you a real brief summary of what the switch theory is, so that way you go, why the hell are we talking about the Olympic? So we have the Titanic and the Olympic. They're pretty dang similar. And now let's talk a little bit about what would happen with the Olympic. The first ship in the Olympic Ocean Liner line of ships and then we will talk about the Titanic, which came after Olympic. So on June 14th of 1911, the Olympic would make her maiden voyage with Edward John Smith as her captain. And only a year later, Smith, Captain Smith, would die in the sinking of the Titanic. I'm probably going to say Titanic like that in quotes and you guys can't see me right now but i'm doing the quotation fingers so that's really helpful on an audio format but anyways you know the olympic makes her maiden voyage and then only seven days after her setting out on her maiden voyage on june 21st of 1911 the first mishap concerning the olympic would take place when the steam tug the ol hollenbach would attempt to assist the Olympic into its berth on Pier Number 59 in the Hudson River. And so while deckhands were attempting to wind the heaving line around the bit of the Olympic, the Olympic starboard propeller was reversed, which caused the stern of the tug to collide with the ocean liner, which I will include in these show notes a lawsuit concerning this minor collision for any interested and you can learn all different kinds of details about this incident but anyhow the 
ship would sustain some minor damage from this. Nothing too serious, but hey, it was not a great sign for a ship who had just got done with her maiden voyage. And then, not long after that, came a much more devastating collision concerning the Olympic and the British cruiser vessel, the HMS Hawk, which damaged, which damaged the cruiser's bow and the stern of the Olympic as the two ships were sailing parallel to one another in the Solent, which is a strait located between the Isle of Wight and Great Britain. So they were riding parallel, sailing parallel, by one another through this strait, and this incident would happen. And yet again, Ed Smith was the captain during both of these incidents. And so officially, the incident occurred because the Olympic turned starboard, and the radius of the ship, because it's a big-ass ship, was so large as to not provide the Hawk sufficient time to take countermeasures and to avoid the ship. Or you could also say that the suction of the Olympic pulled the hawk into it and that perhaps the hawk had ventured too close to such a large ship. However, the author of the Titanic Never Sank and the Great Titanic Conspiracy, Robin Gardner, has floated another, another idea as to why this possibly took place, which... Uh, I don't know if he necessarily believes this or if he's just throwing it out there as a possibility, but the Hawk is a ship that was meant to ram into other ships. That's what the one of the purposes of this ship was. And so he theorizes that possibly because there was kind of some beef between Morgan and the British government at this time. Maybe they were almost kind of running a field test on one of Morgan's ships. I may be bastardizing it, but anyways, if you want to read about that, you can read The Great Titanic Conspiracy, which is not super long, but it's kind of dense reading, but it's got a lot of interesting stuff in there that makes up for some of the more more dense portions but anyhow the hawk had been you know designed to sink ships by ramming into them so one can see how the damage sustained by the olympic regardless of the cause of this crash wouldn't be as minimal as that of its collision with the hollenbach so the olympic would have two large holes torn into its hull both above and below the waterline and you can find pictures of the damage above the waterline on the Olympic from this collision and it was a big triangular shaped you know hole and you know then you have to take into account that it also had significant damage below its waterline and the damage sustained by the Olympic you know would uh cause some other issues as well and given that this accident occurred uh, with one of the Navy ships, the Admiralty would be the one to investigate. And they would pull the classic, you know, we investigated ourselves and have found ourselves to not be at fault with <laughs> what happened. Kind of like when the police unfairly kill or maim or, you know, brutalize someone. It's like, well, we investigated our department and we found that we're actually the coolest guys ever and that we're super handsome as well or you know, whatever they say. So the White Stars insurers would decline to pay out on the claim, and this was not very good for the Olympic considering the significant injuries sustained. 
such as steel plating dislodged across four decks, thousands of busted rivets, um, and a damaged crankshaft and propeller. And this would also give the ship a list to port caused by the bent keel. List to port meaning, or a ship having a list, because that's something that will be referred to, you know, throughout this episode, meaning that the ship tilted a tad, which would be noted by passengers such as Lawrence Beasley, the Cambridge-educated science teacher who would publish a book on his story of survival aboard the Titanic, where he would mention, you know, we know the Olympic has this list, but he would mention that when he was aboard the Titanic that he noticed this list. So I will go ahead and I will read from this, and there will be a link to the chapter of Beasley's book, which I am pulling this from. So you guys, I can't remember the name of the book right now, but anyways, I will include this in there. But here is what Lawrence Beasley would say. I then called the attention of our table. He's at lunch, by the way. I should preface that. He is talking about having lunch aboard the Titanic. I then called the attention of our table to the way the Titanic listed the port. I had noticed this before. And we all watched the skyline through the portholes as we sat at the purser's table in the saloon. It was plain she did so, for the skyline and sea on the port side were visible most of the time, and on the starboard, only sky. The purser remarked that probably coal had been used mostly from the starboard side. It is no doubt a common occurrence for all vessels to list to some degree, but in view of the fact that the Titanic was cut open on the starboard side, and before she sank listed so much to port that there was quite a chasm between her and the swinging lifeboats across which ladies had to be thrown, or to cross on chairs laid flat. The previous listing to port may be of interest. So anyways, we figure out from Beasley, and there was other passengers who would take note of the Titanic's you know, kind of prominent list, you know, I mean, as Beasley said, he was a Cambridge educated man who would go on to teach science. Um, and so he would notice this list. Other passengers aboard the ship would know this list. It was kind of a prominent list to say the least. And so, you know, official historians of the Titanic, you know, they will basically concur with what Beasley said that, you know, it was probably because coal was, you know, more on the starboard side. And so, you know, there was an uneven weight distribution and that's what caused this list. But to people who are switch theorists, such as, you know, foremost among them Gardner, um, this is for a very different reason. It's because the ship, is, the ship has a damaged keel that is causing this list. So, Anyhow, it would take over two weeks to make temporary repairs to the Olympic before it returned to the Harland and Wolf shipyard for further and extensive repairs, which took seven weeks. So, you know, not looking good considering that these are just temporary repairs, um, you know, so that way it could um, return just to the shipyard to have the actual permanent repairs done but perhaps it was at this point that those at the white star line began to entertain the idea of a potential switch and one can see footage at least according to the hour-long documentary titanic the shocking truth where you can see the area of the ship that has been patched up which is a very long portion of the starboard side of the ship not to mention whatever damage it was that was below the waterline and also titanic the shocking truth 
has um, a pretty fun act outs and dramatizations between sharing some facts about the Titanic and the Olympic and laying out their case for a switch. And then there's some things about the documentary that I think aren't exactly good. I think at the very end, they may be just straight up faked footage, not trying to throw allegations that aren't, aren't true um, of an underwater, you know, look at the, supposed titanic or whatever but i couldn't find any of that footage not that i've watched all of it from any of the other titanic expeditions that have been done but anyhow that is neither here nor there i still think that it's fun to watch if just if anything for some of these not super well acted out dramatizations of you know perhaps what these conversations looked like between you know white star line people about whether or not to do the switch it's it's some fun stuff but um, anyhow, you know, so Titanic, The Shock and Truth and the writings of Robin Gardner are where I'm, you know, taking a lot of this information from the show. And you can find that material along with the rest in the references, uh, uh, along with the rest of the references in the description on whichever podcast app that it is that you are using, dear listener. But the starboard propeller from the Titanic was stamped with the Titanic's number 401 and it would actually be fitted to the Olympic in order to patch it up. And a propeller blade would be thrown from the starboard side yet again on another subsequent voyage of the uh, Olympic, which would only further add to the woes of the White Star Line. And I believe that the reason that this propeller was thrown is I think that they may be like accidentally skimmed over some underwater wreckage or something like that, if I recall exactly. I'm not sure, so forgive me if I'm wrong on that. Something that I've learned in preparing the research for this episode is that people get surprisingly heated about the issue of the Titanic, and people get pretty mad at switch theorists for some stuff. Considering that it happened over a hundred years ago, that this is a century-old issue, um, I feel like that people would have had time to calm down, but there are some pretty big Titanic fanboys out there who will jump down your throat if you say the wrong thing about the Titanic, so I might have a uh, flood of switch theorist haters coming at me but anyhow the white star line you know at would be dealt another harsh blow by this after the hawks financial disaster which saddled the company with not only repair fees but some pretty hefty legal fees as well so robert gardner would write of this in the great titanic conspiracy saying Harland and Wolf was under a considerable amount of pressure to complete the repairs to Olympic as quickly as possible. The ship had cost the White Star Line about 1,500,000 pounds to build. To gain some idea of how that figure relates to today's prices, you have to add a couple of knots. And the company was losing between 4,000 pounds and 5,000 pounds a day in lost fares, freight charges, and builder's cost while the ship was laid up. So about so without further ado, the crankshaft and the propeller shaft intended for Titanic were fitted in place of Olympic's own bent and twisted ones. Then it was time to fit Titanic's starboard main propeller to her damaged sister, still bearing Titanic's build number 401. It is clearly visible in the wreck, showing that the ship is in fact Olympic. Only at this point did it become apparent to all concerned with the repair that they were wasting their time. And 
he would go on to say, Harlan and Wolf was short of money and could not afford to do a proper repair job on Olympic without extracting a large percentage of the cost from White Star before the work was completed. Unfortunately, White Star was also experiencing something of a cash crisis. It had already paid out for one new ship and was in the process of paying for a second. The line's owner, J.P. Morgan, had for the time being invested as much as he was prepared to in his shipping cartel. As far as Morgan was concerned, if White Star could not solve its own financial problems, it would just have to go. It wasn't as if White Star was the only shipping line he owned, and if it didn't go under, his other lines would buy up and if it did go under, his other lines would buy up the best of its ships at knockdown prices. As no real money would actually change hands, this scenario would have caused Morgan no concern at all. Joseph Bruce Bruce Ismay, the man actually running International Mercantile Marine, was concerned about the fate of White Star Line. Until White Star had been taken over in 1901 to 1902, he had been the owner of the company, which had been built up by his father. Ismay was not about to sit idly by while his father's shipping line went under. The quick answer to the problem was already at Belfast. Fitting out. What could be easier than sending the second sister to sea in Olympic's place? And so now we kind of have the basis as to why a switch would even be contemplated by those at International Mercantile Marine. And, you know, at least according to Gardner's perspective, you know, Morgan didn't have quite so much to lose as did people like Ismay. So as we can see, you know, Ismay is yet again kind of casted into the role of villain, regardless of if you believe the official story or the switch theory, or if you just watched James Cameron's Titanic. Unless you're like one of those guys who likes to take up this side of the villain, which, you know, for some reason I kind of found myself wanting to do with Rose's husband in the Titanic. I mean, he's a rich guy. He's a butthead. You look at him and you just kind of want to punch him in the face. But also, there's something about Rose that just, I don't know, good looking young lady, but something about her actions that frustrated me. I think that it kind of seemed like she wanted to just play pretend poor with with Jack's character and like that that was some you know kind of fun game for her uh you know but anyhow this isn't a Titanic movie review and thank goodness because I don't really want to review the Titanic um and I want to want to have to watch it more than I already have because movie's super long that's three hours plus of my life that I dedicated to James Cameron after he had already stolen so much of my life with that first Avatar movie. James Cameron has really, uh, I don't know, but I guess Terminator and Aliens was, uh, was cool. So I'll give Cameron that anyhow. But now that we've kind of laid the basis for what we're talking about, let's get into the switch itself. So the old switcheroo, the switcheroonie Dooney. What would that look like? What makes some people think that there was a switch in the first place? Well, one thing that could strike one as curious is that the Olympic had been open to the public during its time in Belfast, Belfast and Liverpool. 
but the Titanic was not open for public inspection prior to its maiden voyage. So there's one thing that could strike one as curious. And another argument that people make for the switch is that just two days prior to Titanic's maiden voyage, she had carpet placed over her all the public areas just about because if the titanic was actually the olympic as the switch theory holds it would be pretty obvious that it was not the titanic but rather her older sister ship when people got aboard the supposedly brand spanking new titanic and they saw that there was scuffed linoleum and cigar stained tile and you know stains or cracks in the tile or any of those kinds of things on this new ship. And so it is kind of peculiar that after placing linoleum flooring across the ship, that carpet would be quickly laid down on top of it just right prior to the maiden voyage. And the reason given by those who are not switch proponents is that the Titanic was the Olympic perfected. And I suppose that carpet was considered at you know the very last minute to be more luxurious than linoleum which personally if you were to ask me i would be preferential to linoleum as opposed to carpet especially aboard a ship you know where you're gonna have like rain on the deck and stuff like that you're gonna have people get into carpet all wet you're gonna have you know rich fat cats smoking cigars it's all gonna be getting ash on on the carpet they're going to be staining it up i can't only imagine how much of a nightmare it'd be to clean all the carpet on the titanic so i'm definitely team linoleum but i guess that at the very last minute that was considered a priority to change it with carpet over so there's another reason why some people think that the you know titanic was actually the olympic um now to return to some of the minor differences between the olympic and the titanic things that also make people believe that there was a switch the olympic had 16 portholes on its sea deck and the titanic had only 14 and in between its launch and its maiden voyage the titanic would acquire another couple of portholes which according to some was because as the olympic had alterations made to better her her sister ship, the Titanic, would undergo these same alterations. But according to the theory that we are entertaining, this would be because a switch had taken place. And, you know, we'll perhaps in the next episode get into some of the, you know, more mainstream explanations as to these portholes and stuff. But really right now we're just trying to lay out the switch theory. So we've got this porthole funny business going on. And another piece of evidence used by switch theorists is that the windows on the B deck were evenly spaced upon the launch of the Titanic. But by the time of its maiden voyage, they became uneven. And so Gardner comments on the alleged switch as well as the postponement of the completion of the Titanic by saying this. Even without doing a proper repair, it still took the full might of Harlan and Wolf two months to patch up Olympic well enough for her to return to service for the limited period they needed. During those same two months, work began to alter Titanic back to her original layout as a lookalike for her sister, as well as continuing to complete her normal fitting out. 
the alterations to Titanic again presented no particular difficulties for the shipbuilders. However, they realized that it would take a little longer to do the alterations and to complete the ship than it would have done to simply continue as they had been doing, so they announced a postponed completion date. By way of explanation, they said that the repairs to Olympic had drawn manpower from the second ship, thus delaying her completion. This explanation was plainly an excuse. The work needed to patch up Olympic was a ma of a major structural nature, such as removing and replacing heavy steel components and 30 by 6 feet 1 inch thick hole plates, while the work needed to complete the Titanic was such as carpet fitting, installing wooden paneling, putting in the electrical fittings, and so forth. Even in 1911, riveters did not put in wooden paneling, and electricians did not install propeller shafts. Completely different groups of workers were needed for whatever had to be done aboard each sister ship, which was why they had been built with one progressing a few months ahead of the other in the first place. For the repairs to Olympic, steel workers must have been seconded from other ships being constructed in the yard or brought in from outside. Olympic's repairs could not have materially affected the progress in completing Titanic. Only altering the layout of the ship at the last moment provides a believable explanation for the postponed completion date. And so there we have it. Sorry for my uh, gap in reading. And also sorry if you heard me taking off my jacket. I've got an um, old school starter jacket that I got from my grandpa after he deceased. I took that from grandpa's house and it's pretty sick but it is a, a material that kind of can make noise when one is trying to take it off but anyways there we have Gardner's explanation as to you know some of this stuff concerning the swish although he goes you know way more deeply into it and I will link the books of his below so that way you guys can go check that out if you want to have a more in-depth knowledge of it but what about the names on the ship? You know, one's going to say Olympic, one's going to say Titanic. That's going to be pretty obvious, you know. Well, proponents of the switch theory say that the names on the bows and the sterns of each ship would be changed with thin size names on the bows being filled with putty and painted over, and with the raised lettering on the stern being ground down and replaced with either, you know, Titanic or Olympic, depending upon the ship that is being discussed. So... Gardner would also say that things that I tried but could not substantiate, such as uh, one of the things that he says is that there was this retired captain who became a dock worker, and he would observe some of the 13 lifeboats that would be recovered from the alleged Titanic had the name Olympic carved into the gunwells, and that he would actually see people cover and paint over these but i could not figure out where he got this story from i think he said that sometimes journalists was told about this and it got relayed some other way i i'm not sure where he got that there's a couple other things uh, my biggest beef and maybe it's just because i read the kindle version on my laptop because i didn't want to wait for the book to get shipped in but at least on the kindle version maybe it's a formatting issue but there is not citations to each claim. Like there is a, you know, an appendix and stuff like that in the back. But I can't figure out where uh, now I'm looking at the audio on here. And it looks like I maybe just made, cut. Anyhow, 
Sorry if I hurt anybody's ears, but anyhow, I couldn't figure out where he made some of these specific, um, his citations for some of these specific claims, although, you know, there's a list of his sources in the back of the book, so that would have been nice. But another thing cited by switch theorists such as Gardner is the length of the Titanic's sea trials as compared to those of the Olympics. So while the Olympic sea trials were more extensive, lasting two days, and it included high-speed trials, the Titanic's only, you know, and the Titanic's is in quotes there, lasted only a day, and according to Gardner, never went above half speed because the damaged, patched-up hull of the ship would have been unable to withstand the high speeds of an extended, for any extended duration of time. And so then he theorizes, you know, that perhaps the Board of Trade Inspectors who would have been conducting these trials would have expected the ships, the sister ship to perform the same as the Olympic, or maybe even that the Board of Trade Inspectors had been bought off or were brought into the scheme to some extent. So something that would be of crucial importance to this plan coming to fruition, this switch taking place, would obviously be secrecy and compartmentalization. And it has been argued that this would have been potentially accomplished by the newly revised and expanded Official Secrets Act, so the 1911 Official Secret Act, if any of you guys want to go dive into that, which was created in response to the Anglo-German naval race that began in the late 19th century and carried on into the First War. And among the English, there was anti-German sentiment brewing and fears of spies created through the popular literature at the time. And this would all, you know, factor into the Official Secrets Act being passed. And essentially, this legislation would make anything that Harlan and Wolf Shipyard wanted to remain a secret a secret if they so willed it. And it also didn't hurt that these ships were... At least to my knowledge, maybe I'm not understanding properly, but both the uh, Olympic or the Titanic, depending upon who you believe, would eventually be taken in by the Navy during the war, as well as the Britannic would serve as a hospital ship, and both of them would eventually have kind of doomed fates as a result, or maybe it was just the Brit Britannic, but... The Britannic would um, hit a, a naval mine, according to some. To some, maybe it was something different. There were some minor conspiracies surrounding that, too. So much intrigue around these three ships. But anyways, um, to my knowledge, they were kind of built in mind with the fact that the Navy might acquisition these boats in order to use them in the Navy. And so this would also play into the fact of, you know, that... Things could be done in working on these ships in secret and that basically anything that was going on in the Harlan and Wolf shipyards could remain a secret and not open to public scrutiny due to the Official Secrets Act, you know, which is to try and keep state secrets away from those evil Germans and the, and the spies leading up to the First War. So, according to Gardner, the switch was not as secret as some would have liked it to be, though, with word traveling between those in the pubs and, you know, just chitter-chatter in Northern Ireland. I don't know if people in Northern Ireland, if I have any Belfast listeners, let me know if you still hear rumors going around that the, that the ships were, were sunk, um, that the Titanic was actually the Olympic if a switch happened. Uh, so, that's my 
request to all my Northern Irish listeners. And also, do you guys just like hot, juicy goss as much as the rest of us? I think we all can be a little bit of, you know, sluts for hot goss, or maybe that's not a cool word to say. Um, you know, we, we, we can all be fans of hot goss from time to time. So essentially, you know, that's what the legislation did. And according to, you know, Gardner, you know, it's not as secret as it thought. He even claims that there were some schools in Northern Ireland who are known to ta- to teach that the Titanic was a case of insurance fraud up into the 1950s. So according to him, it was, you know, only in the official publications of the day that essentially refused to discuss this and that this more than likely had to do with the official Secrets Act. But now let's talk a little bit about J.P. Morgan and let's talk a little bit about insurance fraud. And then we'll conclude the first part of our two part series on the Titanic. So J.P. Morgan, was he a cool bloke? Spoiler alert. No, he was not. And one of the many curious things surrounding the sinking of the Titanic, Titanic. (laughs) Yeah, you think the Titanic sank? Try again, guys. But one of the suspicious things around the sinking of the Titanic was that J.P. Morgan, who owned the Titanic, had booked a suite aboard the ship with his own private promenade deck and bath that even included specially designed cigar holders after he had attended the Titanic launch. So, according to proponents of the switch theory, just prior to the ship departing on its maiden voyage, he would decide not to get on the ship, but rather he called in sick. I suppose he probably had a bad case of the sniffles or or something. But I haven't been able to see where it was that people have, you know, gotten this idea that he called in sick. Although one historian who is not a proponent of the switch hypothesis would say that Morgan was sick. So perhaps there is a basis in reality for this claim that Morgan would at least claim to be sick. And that's why he couldn't go aboard the Titanic. And not only would Morgan elect to not go on the doomed maiden voyage of that White Star Line ship, but he would also pull his collection of fine art from the ship only days before the voyage. And I've actually found an article from back in the day that says so. The article comes from the Trenton True American, um, their April 18, 1912 publication, under the heading, Diamonds on the Titanic, Jewels Worth $5 Million, Said to Have Been Consigned to Dealers, Morgan's Bronzes Not Aboard. And it talks about J.P. Morgan's bronzes being taken off the Titanic and how if he had not made this kind of last-minute decision that his fancy pants art would be in the bottom of the Atlantic along with uh, a bunch of people who were not as fortunate as to call in with the sniffles. But I will include the newspaper clipping in the show notes below so you all can see it for yourself. But it is important to note that this claim by switch theorists does, if not entirely, at least mostly bears out in reality. So what did Morgan decide to do with his time instead of spending it aboard one of the most luxurious, if not the most luxurious suites, aboard the most luxurious ship in the world in that time that he had already booked for himself? Well... It appears as if he decided to instead pay a visit to a French resort of the, and I'm going to butcher this, so sorry for any Parisian listeners, the 
Alabans with his mistress, and this has been relayed in accounts from non-switch theorists once again, such as the book Gilded Lives Fatal Voyage, The Titanic's First Class Passengers and Their World by Hugh Brewster. So, I mean, he would say that he would go to this French resort in order to, you know, kind of take the cure for whatever it was that he was sick with. And it would be that he wouldn't just go with himself, but he would also bring the, the mistress, um, Sean Connery, he brought the mistress along with him. Um, and of course, detractors of the switch theory, such as Ray LePin of the Titanic Historical Society, say that he could have, you know, genuinely felt ill and he just wanted to take the cure at the spa with his mistress. But they also point to another possible reason for his visit to France, um, which is relayed by one of Morgan's many biographers who said that France was changing its laws in regards to into Americans exporting art treasures so that perhaps Morgan had gone to France to oversee his art treasures leaving the country before any such law went into effect so I mean one of Morgan's biographers says that so perhaps that is the truth but anyhow if you look up like Titanic JP Morgan on Google or Titanic switch or whatever it is crazy how many articles there are debunking. I haven't seen it myself, but apparently there was some sort of TikTok that went super viral. That was some girl talking about how the Titanic was switched with the Olympic and the insurance aspect of it. And I guess, I also guess that at some point, I don't know if this is true or not, or if this is just like Reuters debunking bullshit garbage. They say that QAnon people were getting on in on this theory. And I, you know, like I was reading this one article and it's like, you know, QAnon people say the Rothschilds or the Jesuits maybe sank the Titanic. I have not seen anybody saying that. Not to say that it's not true. And I know that there's a lot of QAnon loons out there. But I mean, they like literally set it up in this article to where if you're talking about the Titanic sinking, that you're like, possibly anti-semitic that you think that like jews you know switched the titanic out or whatever which is just kind of ridiculous um you know not saying that there's not anybody out there who's said that i'm sure somebody out there has said that but it's so funny how riled up people are about you know just like this tiktok and then i guess about the on the separate side there's some q and on people talking about it so i guess people really get butt hurt if you say the wrong thing about the Titanic, and I was astounded by how many debunking articles they were, and they all like to mention, I guess that there's this theory that I haven't seen where this is going around, I've only seen debunking people recount this, but there was a number of wealthy people aboard the Titanic, some of them pretty prominent people, like there was the Aster, there was um, a Guggenheim and some other guy who were aboard the Titanic. And I guess that there's some people who theorize that these were enemies of J.P. Morgan and that they opposed the creation of the Federal Reserve. And according to these debunking websites, at least there's no evidence that they were truly opposed to the Federal Reserve. And that, you know, the idea is that J.P. Morgan got his enemies to come aboard the Titanic and then he deliberately sunk it in order to create the Federal Reserve, which 
I don't know how that bears out. I mean, I know that the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and you have that meeting at Jekyll Island. I don't know if it necessarily makes sense time-wise. I don't know if there was concrete plans in place for the Federal Reserve Central Bank prior to the, you know, when the Titanic was, you know, sailing out or whatever. But, I mean, I, I haven't, doing all this research, really ran into two Definitely haven't ran into any of these alleged anti-Semitic Titanic theorists out there. But I also haven't seen too much of that Federal Reserve thing. Just a couple random articles or something. I don't know. Maybe it's going around on BitChute or Odyssey or or something like that. So um, I, I I can't confirm nor deny that. But anyhow, it's very funny how riled up people get in relation to the Titanic and I love how all these debunking articles, they just like, you know, they first of all conflate this with like somehow you're, you know, these people who have questions about the Titanic or like bringing in Rothschilds and Jesuits and stuff into which I haven't seen any examples of in reality, only them claiming this. But then it's also funny too, because you like read these articles and like just the idea, they're like credulous almost at the idea that JP Morgan would commit some sort of insurance fraud as if JP Morgan was this like super cool guy who, you know, really cares about people or something. So it's pretty funny. And we'll get into some of the other things that detractors say, some of the more concrete examples of it. And uh, there's also a website called Titanic Switch Exposed, which I'd say is the best example at maybe actually debunking the switch theory that at least have some good criticisms. But like some of these Reuters articles and, you know, like ones with like fact check meters and stuff. Oh, man, they were killing me. This stuff is is vile and it's going to send me to an early grave if I look at too many of too many of these debunking articles but anyways there's a little bit about jp morgan that was all roughly true he did appear to call in sick he did take his treasures off there he did somewhat last minute decide not to go aboard the suite that he had booked for himself and he did own the white star line through international mercantile marine and so i mean that's not to say that the switch did or didn't happen but, you know, it's uh, uh, some of the claims of the switch theorist do check out. Not necessarily all of them. Perhaps maybe they all do. But anyhow, let's talk now for just a little bit about insurance fraud, which is kind of at the heart of the switch theory. And so although this is by no means going to be exhaustive, perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about the insurance aspect in our next episode We probably will touch at it at least tangentially, but we might even go even deeper into this because I've been trying to learn as much as possible about the Titanic insurance situation, um, which is actually more difficult than you think that it would be. But pretty much among all the detractors of the switch theory, if you read what they have to say, they unanimously cite that the Titanic was supposedly underinsured. And so one doesn't even have to entertain the switch theory very much because this fact alone makes it fall on its face. So let's look at both perspectives. So detractors like to point out that the Titanic was insured for only $5 million while it cost $7.5 million to build or in the actual currency that it was used in, it cost 1.5 million sterling to make um, 
the Titanic and it was only insured for a million sterling. And so just, you know, right there is what they point to. And I mean, we can find other examples of this on Tuesday, April 30th of 1912. Bruce Ismay testified at the United States Senate inquiry on day 11 and was asked about the cost of the ship and insurance. And the conversation went as follows. He's being questioned by a Senator Smith who would say, there has been considerable confusion about the cost of the Titanic. I will take the liberty of asking you to state it. Mr. Ismay she cost seven million five hundred thousand dollars sir and for how much was she insured for five million dollars i understand sir and so you know there are other sources that point to this from the vice president of international mercantile marine the original insurance certificate for the titanic and articles from the times such as one of the washington times articles from titanic insured for five million dollars half of her value but now let's take a look at Gardner's perspective to the insurance aspect of this case in order to determine for ourselves the legitimacy of a potential case of insurance fraud having taken place. And I am just going to read a whole appendix that he has in his book, The Great Titanic Conspiracy. It's pretty short. It's just a couple pages long. And I think that it is a good concise explanation as to his view when it comes on the insurance so we can get a look at the opposing view and i really need to dig and do more research and hey actually if you want to contact me before next weekend you yourself observer nation come on observer nation you can do research yourself and if you find anything of note on this or anything else in regards to titanic business or olympic business you can go ahead and send it my way and if you find something good i'll mention it in the next episode i can even give you a shout out if you want to your twitter or whatever so you can dm me at thing things no thing observer the show's things observe twitter is thing observer one word you can dm me there with anything interesting that you might find on the subject if you decide to do your own digging so anyways Let's read this appendix real quick, and we'll get Gardner's opinion as to it, and perhaps in the next episode we can clarify and go even deeper on the issue. But he would write under the appendix titled Titanic's Insurance, The insured situation with regard to the Titanic is, to say the least, difficult to unravel. The White Star Line habitually underinsured its ships by about a third of their value to save money on the premiums. Titanic had cost the line about 1,500,000 sterling, so, following the company's usual practice, she would normally have been covered for 1 million sterling, which is exactly what has always been claimed. In truth, the ship was insured for considerably more than just a million or even her real value. Willis Faber and Co. acted as agents and sold 1 million sterling worth of insurance in relatively small parcels to a large number of insurance companies in Britain none being in a position to accept such a large risk alone. Among the largest of the risks taken on Britain was for 75,000 sterling by R.T. Jones of the Commercial Union. More than 70 other companies were involved, accepting risk of between 1,000 sterling and 75,000 sterling. The world's most famous maritime insurer, Lloyd's of London, does not appear on the document listing the names and amounts covered, although that list does show that the full 1 million sterling was covered. 
This insurance document, known as the Titanic Slip, is regarded as the definitive evidence that the ship was truly covered for only one million sterling usually claimed. However, from other documentation, it is apparent that Lloyds did indeed carry a large piece of Titanic's insurance. As late as July 8, 1912, Lloyds appears to have been trying to distance itself from the disaster, even though as early as April 17th it had begun to liquidate assets to cover its commitment. The Liverpool Echo carried an article quoting from a letter written by Mr. A. Scott, secretary of Lloyds to the Times. In view of the reports which have appeared in the process in connection with the inquiry into the loss of the SS Titanic to the effect that the vessel was built considerably in excess of the requirements of Lloyd's Register, I am directed to say these statements are inaccurate. On the contrary, in important parts of her structure, the vessel as built did not come up to the requirements of Lloyd's Register for a vessel of her dimensions. Nevertheless, Lloyds, unlike some German underwriters, honored its commitment and eventually paid out almost 1,500,000 sterling. As is already apparent, insurance cover for Titanic was not only arranged in Britain, but another large sum was covered by European, Australian, and American companies, again in many relatively small parcels. The insurance company of North America carried $50,000 of the risk, and Atlantic Mutual accepted double the amount. For American purposes, the vessel was valued at $5 million, which was equivalent to 1 million sterling at the time. Despite the generally held belief that Titanic was underinsured by as much as a third of her actual value, it seems that this was not the case. In fact, the vessel was dramatically overinsured by more than 1,500,000 sterling, perhaps more. The insurance situation with Titanic was so complicated that to the present day the file on the ship has still not been finally closed. There is a clause written into maritime insurance of the day, and it may well still be included in more modern policies. This clause, known as the Sister Ship Clause, states that, should the vessel insured come into collision or receive salvage services from another vessel, belonging wholly or in part to the same owners or under the same management, the assured shall have the same rights under the policy as they would have were the other vessel the property of owners not interested in the policy. This would explain why any vessels intended to be part of any rescue or salvage attempt would have to belong to the same owners as the victims, and why vessels belonging to other owners would be discouraged from participating in any rescue, which is exactly what happened in April 1912. On April 16, 1912, the day after Titanic foundered, the Liverpool and London Steamship Protection Association, an insurance company, agreed to provide a third-party insurance covering passengers, crew, and baggage aboard the ship. Olympic had provisionally been entered onto the London and Liverpool books at 45,000 tons at the committee meeting on February 14, 1911, but not on risk. Titanic was provisionally entered at 46,000 tons at the committee meeting on February 13, 1912, but not on risk. Olympic was entered onto the company books on risk at 45,324 tons at the committee meeting on May 30, 1911, to coincide with the ship's trials and transfer from H&W. The entry was backdated to May 28 to cover sea trials. The backdating of insurance cover is fraud, no matter whether it is done with the best possible motives or not. Titanic was entered on risk at 46,329 tons at the committee meeting of April 16, 1912. The entry was backdated to April 1, 1912 to cover the sea trials. Unfortunately, this entry was made the day after the ship sank, and the committee knew this, which again is fraud. 
To cover the insurance company losses, a special premium was levied on all the other passenger carrying lines insured by them, thus defrauding the shareholders and owners of those lines. Clearly, the Liverpool and London insurance company was prepared to bend the rules a little for the White Star Line. However, if the ship that sank on April 15, 1912 was really Olympic, she was legitimately covered by the insurance agreement entered onto the insurer's books on the previous May 30th. And so there's the appendix on assurance fraud. And as you can see, there is more complication than some of the detractors like to make out to be, even if you don't necessarily agree with Gardner's conclusions. But anyhow, I'm going to make that the first part on our two-part series of Titanic. But you're probably wondering, well, even if they were going to intentionally sink the Titanic, which was really the Olympic, how the hell would they do that? Were they just going to kill everyone on board? How would they even get the crew to go along with that? How would they get the captain of the ship to go along with that? Well, there is an explanation, and whether you choose to believe it or not is going to be up to you. But we will be covering that, and we're also going to cover some other stuff about the rescue ships and some oddities going on with that, and as well as dive in deeper to some of the stuff that we have already discussed in this podcast. But I think it's going to be interesting. I think it'll clear up some of your questions if you have some questions, and we will also cover some of the things that people use as evidence to try and shoot down the switch theory and hey, maybe by then I'll decide where it is that I actually stand on the issue because, well, I kind of want to lean a little bit towards the switch theory. I do think that there are some things that haven't entirely persuaded me yet. And so maybe next week I'll come to a conclusion or maybe you will come to a conclusion. And as I said earlier, if you want to message me anything about Titanic stuff or about anything else, whether you want to tell me you love me, you hate me, you're indifferent, you don't even know why you're taking the time out of your day to message me, you can DM me on Twitter. It is open to anybody, even if I don't follow you. That is Thing Observer, one word. And I'm going to do another episode on this subject next week. We're going to go into some of the stuff we haven't talked about, and we're going to delve deeper into some of the stuff we have. It's going to be really good. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed other episodes, if you enjoy this show, I would highly encourage you to leave a review on whatever podcast app that it is that you listen to. It gives the show some credibility. and makes people go, hey, there's some other people who listen to this show. Maybe I should listen to this show. And if you also, if you really enjoy it, and you have a friend who you think would maybe enjoy this show, just send it over to them. If you know someone who's really interested in a subject that I covered, send it their way. Spread the word around. And anyhow, I hope everybody out there is having a great day, a great week. And I hope that you guys have fun up until the next time that I talk to you, which will be soon. Love you all. Take care.